Hey, welcome. It is a beautiful day out. No? Hey, let me just say um, about this marriage event coming up, who ought to be there? That I think it would be an incredible use of stewarding your relationship. Um, so those who are married ought to be there. And those who are seriously considering marriage ought to be there. Th- these are life-changing times. In a time when marriages are under attack, it would be really good to make an investment. Um, and so it's right around Valentine's Day. Guys, if you go ahead and just real quickly sign up and surprise your wife, that would be cool. <laughs> right? Uh, so do that. That would be awesome. Um, I woke up this morning with, with, with two things um, different. First, I woke up a Seattle Seahawks fan this morning. <laughs> oh, geez. Just lamenting a little bit. But uh, for those of you who are like, football's still going? It is. The other thing um, that was, was, I just woke up with a different joy today as a result of being in, in this passage in this message this week, preparing it um, to maybe just challenge our hearts in a way we've never been challenged. And, and that joy stemmed from this realization that my hope today is not in any of you. <laughs> isn't that good? Like, that's refreshing, isn't it? My hope is just not in you. <laughs> Some of you are really uncomfortable right now. It's just like, why not? Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and we have this thing that happens every once in a while in our home where the kids will migrate to our bedroom floor during the night. I don't know if anybody else has that or had that happen. It's just like, boom, and you wake up and you're stepping on little people. And I was walking through the room this morning and just looking at our amazing kids and my amazing wife and just thinking, my hope is not in my family. I have a great family. I love my family. Um, I enjoy them immensely and they are a blessing from God. Most days. <laughs> well, they're a blessing from God every day, but sometimes it's just hard to see it. But they're not, my, they're just, my hope isn't in my family. I come to the church this morning and see people on this staff that I love dearly and every one of you and people coming and going. I just like, my hope is just not in this church. I mean, it's a good church, but it's not that good. <laughs> I mean, to put your hope in, right? I mean, we, it says you belong here. People throw that one up to us all the time, by the way. That just means that God loves you and you belong in the family of God. If you'll choose to be part of it, you belong. But our hope isn't in the church. My hope isn't in this church. I mean, it was just more, more and more joy was coming in as I was feeling this. I don't know if you're feeling this at all, but my hope today is actually not in this world or anything of the world. Some days it feels like it is and wants to be, but my hope is in Jesus. There's actually only one place hope can exist, and it's in Jesus. Everything else is false hope. I have this realization today that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked to the edge of eternity, and he sent his Son. A couple days ago, it was during Christmas vacation, my son, who's 14, it was 11 o'clock at night, I think I was winding down, we were in the, we were, Natalie and I were in bed, we're watching TV, the kids were running in and out, my son comes in, some of you are like, 11 o'clock, it's Christmas break, and he comes in at 11 o'clock and he said, hey dad, can we watch The Passion of the Christ? And I'm like, oh, 
like at 11 o'clock. Like that's, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's uh, portrayal of the crucifixion and what Jesus went through, it is one of the closest representations to what Jesus actually may have gone through. Now, I told my son as we're watching it, and for the first time, he comes face to face with the realization that what Jesus went through for us, and and, and he was asking questions and asking questions. I said, son, when you see Jesus right now fully beaten, fully exposed by the Roman guard and what they were doing in the world and the Pharisees, it isn't even close to what he literally looked like. You couldn't even tell he was a man. He was just moved by that, and he couldn't believe it. And at one point in the movie, they are beating him so much and so often that my son looked at me and said, Dad, why don't they stop? And I said, son, I don't know that that's how it went, but I know he was beaten for us. And the reality of that is so real for me today, that Jesus came to this world, the Son of God, baby in a manger, to be with us and to show us how to live and to die on a cross for our sins And he didn't have to, but he did it. And he didn't just die on a cross for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God, be reunited in purpose with what God is doing in the world, but he also rose from the dead. My son's like, are they going to show him rising? I said, I hope so. I don't remember, but I think they do. And they did in the movie where he stands, and you still see the holes in his hands as he walks out of the grave. Our, Our Savior is risen. He is alive. When we're singing those songs, that's why people are hooting and hollering, because it's true. And thank God it's true. There's a lot of gods in the world today who have graves that you can visit, not ours. They're still looking for it. He's alive, and he isn't just alive, but he he went to the right hand of the Father. He ascended into heaven. People saw him go to sit at the right hand. The enemies of the kingdom of God are under his feet. (sighs) But it doesn't stop there. It's not where it ends. He's actually coming back. He's coming back. Did you know that? That Jesus is coming back? Do you know in Noah's day, God said, I need you to build a boat because I'm sending a flood. And they begin to tell the world around them that there's a flood coming. And it went for so long that the people grew numb to the words, the flood is coming, just like they've grown numb to the words, Jesus is coming. Maranatha. Jesus is coming back. When we take communion, no matter what religion you may find yourself in, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me until when? Until I return. That's the end of the story, folks. That's the hope that we have, that he is coming. We have to sing about it in church all the time. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. And then the ladies would go, hallelujah. I don't know why it was the ladies' part, but, you know, the guys were like, soon and fair, and then hallelujah, and it was cool. But, right, Steve? You know what I'm talking about, right? That was there. We, we, I grew up in church where they would sing, just over in the glory land. I have a home prepared where the saints abide, just over in the glory land. There was this anticipation that this can't be all there is. There has to be more. Because they understood that Jesus was their hope and nothing else. And so there was this anticipation. Why am I telling you this? We're in a series that I believe God has taken us for the last three years to get to this point. And I believe by the end of this year, we won't look the way we look today. 
as people, as families, and as a church, because we are going to begin to unlearn the values of this world so we can learn the values of God. That we desperately, and I need you to hear me, we desperately, because we value something based on how we live. And here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to get confused with what you say you value. You actually live what you value. We can say we believe something, and if we don't go and live what we say we believe, then we don't really believe it. We actually believe what we're living. And so we have values, but we desperately, desperately, and I want you to get this, we desperately need to value what God values. And not just for the sake of following and obeying God, that's a good reason, but because it's for you to do so. We desperately need to value what God values, but there's so much that we value that God doesn't value. And I think that that's so true. What if the same thing we say we value as a church, we actually value as a family? What if the same thing we say we value as a church and as a family, we value as individuals because as an individual, we are the church. And we have the hope of Jesus. And so hope is Jesus and Jesus is hope, but the church isn't the hope of the world. We're just people. Jesus is the hope of the world, but we have Jesus, and so we bring that hope to the world. When we're convinced, he's coming back. I'm barely in my notes right now. (laughs) What if the same thing we say we value as a church, we actually value it as a family and an individual because they actually aren't our values, they're his. They aren't a list of good ideas, but they speak who we are. They're living values, and they are true about us as children of God and becoming more and more true in our lives as we submit and surrender to Jesus by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we start to actually look like Jesus. And so Jesus is our hope. And so as a church, we have said that we actually live like, we're not just saying it, but we live like by the help of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is our hope, that people are our passion, that worship, not less than singing, but way more, living to please God, worship is our response. Do what God tells us to do because we love him and he loves us. The community is our design, that the Bible actually says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so you will be healed, that healing doesn't actually happen in your life unless you're in community. That faith is our foundation. And we're going to be courageous as all get out this year. Get ready. That generosity is our norm. That serving is our privilege and scripture is our guide. That scripture is christ And hope is Christ, and so it bookends all of it in Jesus. Stand with me this morning as we read from Titus. I want to paint a picture of what it means that Jesus is our hope and that we probably ought to realize that our hope is in a lot of things but Jesus. And so we may have to unlearn some things so we can learn to have Jesus as our hope. What does that look like? We'll dive into that, understand that, and then we'll pray that God help us be there, live there, and realize that our values need to match his. We're reading out of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. The words of Paul, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Did you catch that? It teaches us. We have to learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. While we wait for the blessed hope, here it is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. 
These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. God, I just pray in these moments that you would challenge our hearts, that you would convict our hearts, but we pray against in these moments any judgmental spirit, any guilt, shame, and condemnation that does not come from you. That's the devil. We bind that, rebuke it in Jesus' name because we've been given authority that if we would submit to you, we could resist the devil of our soul. And so we resist that in Jesus' name. And we pray that today we would sense and know the love of God in our lives because he loves us. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus is our hope. Here's my question. Is he? Is Jesus your hope? If that is a value, then I live like he is my hope. If that is a value in my life, then I will live like Jesus is my hope. More than anything else. Matter of fact, to be very clear, nothing else can actually be your hope outside of Jesus because the real definition of hope that the Bible gives us is a confident expectation. Worldly hope is wishful thinking. It's a crossing of the fingers, right? We did that for the bears. It didn't work. It's called hopeless. Oh, the Chiefs fans in the room, you guys are loving this moment, aren't you? Uh, it's been a while. I know. Anyway, sorry. The, the lack, my, uh, here we go. I don't even know where I was at. <laughs> more than anything else. More than anything else. Nothing else can actually, that's where I was at. <laughs> nothing else can actually sit at the seat of our hope. But Jesus, because he's a confident expectation of a better tomorrow. Why? Because of the character and promises of God. And nothing else can provide the character and promises of God but Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And so there is an unlearning that has to take place in our lives because over time, for a lot of different reasons, we have gained values in things that we ought not value. Let me unpack that. To unlearn something is to forget it. Now, let me help us uh, understand how unlearning goes. When a, when a new truth comes, and, and that happens because that's what God does. So if it's not God's truth, it's not true. Just so we know. But we've taken things in along the way that we think are true, that aren't true, uh, for lots of reasons. I'll explain that in just a minute. And so we've got to unlearn some things. For some of us, we can unlearn something pretty easy. We can hear the truth. We can say, oh, that sounds better than what I've experienced. And so I'll stop doing that and start doing this. Okay, I'll give some examples in a minute. Other times, the unlearning is so deeply seated in us, or the habit, or the way in which we live and act is on autopilot, and so it's ingrained in us for a lot of different reasons, and so we have to surround ourselves with God's word, with God himself, with his people, so that we can understand what that looks like as we traverse from what we know that isn't true to live in what God says is true. Some of us have to go even one step further because it's so ingrained in the pathways of our brain that we need help in counseling to be able to come out of some of the things and unlearn some of the things that are actually destroying our lives that aren't true about us. And God is looking at us and wants us to go on that journey with him. So learning is this. It's teachability. And it's one of the essentials of the Christian life. I'm going to assume today that everybody's teachable. Nobody's resistant to being taught. That we all want to learn and grow. Jesus called us to be disciples. It's just a big word for being a learner. Someone who learns. Not just anything, but God things. Lifelong learners. Paul said, I want to know one thing. Jesus. One thing. Paul is a smart man. For Paul to say, I want to know one thing. Jesus. That means a lot. It's in Philippians 3.10. 
I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. To know him completely, we, know, we must know him in his death and in his resurrection. Meaning there are some things in us that have to die so that there are things in us that can live. We have to unlearn so we can learn. Tracking with me? And it's often this learning and unlearning process that God uses suffering to accomplish his will in our lives. Yay. We need a better theology of suffering. Do I take the good from God and not the bad? But when my hope is in Jesus, I'll take anything he chooses to give me because it's for me. Unlearning, though, learning to unlearn, this is a tough one because it's a continual process and it's moment by moment. So I want to give you some thoughts here. It's shedding my mind of all that I think I know in order to embrace what God wants me to know. And this is tough because we cling to some things uh, because we think it's true or have convinced ourselves it's true. Or we cling to things because that's just what we've always done and we don't know any different. Okay, so that's, that's our reality. And so many forces and experiences have shaped our perspectives, mine included, from my family to the religious environment I was or was not raised in to the cultural setting I was exposed to. These things tricked me into thinking that I know something. You need to know that if it is outside of God, you don't know anything. <laughs> we can argue that if we would like. There are things that you believe. Let me say this nicely. I'm speaking to myself. So those of you that are saying, go, man, are you talking to me that way? I'm talk we're talking to us. This is us, okay? There are some things in our lives, how many would agree, that we believe that are not true? Well, we're getting there. There are some things in our lives that we believe or that we value that are not helpful. Everything that God chooses to give us is true. And everything that God chooses to give us is helpful. And so we desperately need to value what he values because it's for us and ultimately for others in him. But we're going to have to let go of some of the things that we know we value that aren't God's value or that we don't know that we value and we've got to figure it out. And guess what? When you step up and say, I just don't know, but I want to know the Holy Spirit goes, I'm in. I'll show you because I know your heart and I can help you. So this unlearning, if you will, we do it at work. Let me explain this. How many of you work? That's a lot of us, right? You come into a place, there's a way that you've always done it, but it isn't going the way it should because change happens, change, conflict, growth. So you have to change and there's conflict in it, but you grow when you change. And so change is there. And some of us don't like change. We hate change. Why? Because we'll say, well, we've never done it that way, but guess what? The way you've been doing it doesn't work. So you should stop doing it that way. And if you actually can't stop doing it that way, then we fire you, <laughs> Right? So you got to unlearn that so you can learn the new way. How many of you have had to unlearn some things in work and start doing some other things? Because, well, it's a new generation and the internet messed everything up, including our lives. <laughs> right? And so we're unlearning and learning and there's no difference in our walk with Jesus. It's just more freedom when we learn what God has. And so this, this idea of unlearning the things we don't need to value because we want to value what God values you is awesome and good news. Because we want to know... Well, God, I'll give you a personal example of this. Um, I have been learning lately. Some of you, this is going to shock you. I'm the pastor of the church. You ready for this? Which I'm, my hope's not in that either. Just so you know. Not, not in what I do. It's just not in that. It's in Jesus. But as it, I've been discovering that God is good. 
and all the time. Yeah, and we said that in church, but that didn't register. Why? Because I grew up in a culture of legalism, legalistic Christianity that told me what to do and, sh- and pointed me to this book as a, as a list of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. In, instead of feeling like God was good, I just felt like I was bad. And there was this massive measuring stick in my religion that I had to measure up to everything that I was asked to do and be. And if I didn't, then I was in trouble, not just by the church, but by God. And God was angry and mad at me. And if I wasn't careful, I would go to hell. Well, that's reality. There's a hell and there's a heaven. But God isn't wrapped up in how bad you are. He wants you to see how good he is. That when he looks at you, he doesn't choose to see what's wrong with you. He chooses to see what's missing. And when he puts his finger on something that is destructive for your life, like a value that isn't his value, he isn't showing it to you to condemn you and shame you and upset you. But the Holy Spirit is excitedly going, hey, this right here, let it go because I've got all of this that's way better and it's missing in your life and I want to put it there. But until you get rid of that, I can't put it there because you cannot say one thing and do another. So he puts his finger there and we go, oh, but God is good. And so if I'm focused on the goodness of God, I stop focused on the badness of me. I get to experience God. I'm learning what that, man, I, there's a lot of like, it's like somebody's pulling this, this, this legalistic stuff out of me. And it's just like this deep cord that's going, oh, that's really uncomfortable. <laughs> but it's just good. Does that make sense? It was my own personal little story. If we desire to live like Jesus is our hope, then we may have to unlearn valuing other things as our hope and put them in their proper place. I'm not saying that anything else is bad or not for our enjoyment. I'm just saying they can't be your hope. And for many of us, these things are our hope. This is an important thought. There's a biblical cost to holding on to values that aren't God's. Just so you know, some of you can sit here and go, well, that's fine. You can say that, but I'm going to believe this. There is a cost to ignoring that our values need to be God's values. There's a cost. It's in Luke 16, 13 through 15. I read it last week, but I want you to hear it again. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's why the church needs more all-in messages about you give God 100%, not partial. But they're just not popular. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And so some of the religious people that were there that were enslaved to money, the Pharisees said, who dearly loved their money, heard all this, and they laughed at him. They scoffed at him. And then he said to them, You're like, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. And what this world honors or values is detestable in the sight of God. Why? Because it's the enemy's plan for your life, and it's destructive. It's detestable, not because you're detestable, yes, but because it is detestable. And God wants this best for you. Man, you got to know how much he loves you. We're exalting what God doesn't exalt and we're valuing what he doesn't call valuable. Instead of anchoring our identities in him and the fact that he loves us, we're seeking to justify ourselves before ourselves and before men. But God knows our hearts and so let's let him know it and change it. So who is Jesus to you? Where have you placed your hope? Not based on what you say. I finally have to do that at least once a Sunday. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you live. It's bigger. You can't say you love God and not obey him. It's bigger. Anything that if you were to take Jesus as our hope out of and put in that space... Anything that isn't Jesus is a false hope. But we do it anyway. It's a false hope. 
Let me give you some examples. I was talking to some people here in, in our church, and I said, if you had to say what the world would place their hope in, what things would you say the world places their hope in? And if you agree with this, just kind of nod your head. Say, yeah, I think that's true, and I'll, I'll notice that. Thank you. That was a good practice. Money is our hope. I think that's true. I think we live like that. If you want to know where your heart is, trace your treasure, and you find your heart. That's in the Bible, and it's true. Money is our hope. We live like government is our hope. Oh, help us. But we act like that. Like if we just had this happen in government, then everything. Do you not know that God is in control no matter who is in government? God has us. It may not be easy, and I don't think it's going to get easier. Success is our hope. Hey, not that success is bad. It just doesn't bring what it promises. So you get to the end of it, and it can't fulfill the hope that it told you it would fulfill. But boy, we'll chase it all day long. Be successful. It's not our hope, but we say it is. Success is our hope. Family is our hope. Career is our hope. Doctors are our hope. Spouses are our hope. Self is our hope. Weather is our hope. (laughs) Retirement is our hope. Sports are our hope. Scholarships are our hope. Health is our hope. Religion is our hope. I mean, those are to name a few that we put in the blank that we live out of as if it's true, but it can't be true. Did I miss any? Give me some, because I think fame, I think we think fame is our hope. I think we think what people think about us is our hope. Did I miss any? Food is our hope. (laughs) Missed that one. What else? Reputation Reputation is our hope. Power, significance, what? Being loved by somebody else is our hope. All, all true. Listen, let me, let me tell you what's happening here. Our desires that aren't God's desires, but there are, they stem from the flesh, they stem from the world, they stem from the enemy of our soul. Our desires become our hopes. And when our desires become our hopes, they become our gods. Because Jesus is our God. And he is the only one who can be our hope. And so when we put other things in as Jesus, we make them our gods and their false hope. There is no hope outside of Jesus. The good news? None of these have the power to save you. All these things we just listed, none of them. So to value them over God is to trust them more than you trust God. Now, here's what we've said hope is, and it's from, a, it's from the Bible. We've said hope is a confident expectation of a better tomorrow. A confident expectation. We know that we know that we know that we know that there's a better tomorrow based on the character of God and the promises of God. That he is who he says he is, even though he doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to answer your prayers. He is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he's going to do. All of his promises are yes And amen. All of them. So our definition of hope that God gives us, which is drastically different than the world's, which is cross your finger, answers two really hard questions about God's character and his promises that we often ask. And this is what I want you to begin to get as we begin to grow in our hope hope in Jesus. Here's the two questions. How can I hope in God when by nature I don't trust God or love God or want to obey God? How do I do that? It's really simple. The answer is a new birth. The the answer is give your life to Jesus. 
By God's great mercy, we have been born anew into a living hope, 1 Peter 1. God overcomes our rebellion and gives us a new heart, a heart that by its very nature loves to hope in God. You want to grow your hope in Jesus? Grow your heart in God. That's why I love that song. I wish we'd have sang it a hundred times. Alex, a hundred times. <laughs> Fill me with your heart. What if you put that on a sticky note, put it on your bathroom mirror, and prayed it every day as often as you saw it? Fill me with your heart. Not my heart. Fill me with your heart. My heart likes to hope in things that can't be hoped in. Fill me with your heart because that heart hopes in God. That's how that works. The second question is, how are we to hope in God if we don't know his promises? That is a great question because you can actually know his promises. We ought to become, as followers of Jesus, professional promise declarers. You like that? Ricky, write that down. Professional <laughs> promise declarers, right? If you ever want to see a note-taking notebook, that's the one. The answer is in Romans 15, 4 to the question. Whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction that by the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, that they're always true, we might have what? Hope. We know the promises. The whole Bible is filled with the promises. The Bible is a promise. It's the scripture. It was written to give us what? Hope. Read it. You're like, oh man, I always fall asleep when I read it. It's so hard to understand. I don't care. That's a lie. It's not. There's other things that work there. There's racks back there that have Bibles on them. They're there not for you to steal, to use. <laughs> and if you don't have a Bible, for goodness sake, take one. That's not stealing. If you have one, this isn't have a penny, leave one, need a penny, take one, by the way. We don't want you to leave your Bibles. But it's this important to us. We got to know it. It grows our hope in Jesus when we know it. All right. Jesus didn't just come to live, show us the way, die for the sins of all humanity, rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand with all enemies under his feet just to show us that he could do it. I need you to hear this. He is coming again. It may be tonight. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. Don't be caught sleeping. Be caught ready. And I need us to get this. A physical, in, think about this, a physical incarnation of the Son of God, a physical death, a physical resurrection, a physical ascension, and then, boom, he disappears for the rest of mankind's eternity ever gone, for just done. That's dumb. That's dumb. Why would all that happen for that reason? There has to be a reason. <laughs> You can see what's really behind this denial that Jesus is coming again. And let me just say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're sitting here today saying he's not coming. I don't think anybody's actually saying it. I just think you're living like that. I think I'm living like that. I don't think we're saying he's not coming. I just think we're living like he's not coming. That's the denial. And so I need you to get this because it's huge. It is the denial of a real physical incarnation and a real physical resurrection to not continue on with your belief that he's coming back. Because if he, you don't believe he's coming back, then you might as well stop believing he died and rose. It all goes together. 
If the enemy of our soul can convince us to put our hope in the world, in ourselves, in this life, then we aren't looking for the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. You have to unlearn, church, and I need you to hear me. You have to unlearn that this is all there is. This world, this life, all that comes with it. And you have to learn that there is so much more. I tell my kids as early as I can that if you want to envision eternity, take a lead ball the size of the sun. You can get 330,000 earths in our sun. Take a lead ball the size of the sun and send a sparrow around that lead ball. And the time it takes that sparrow, every time it flies around it, hit it with its beak once. The time it grinds that lead ball into nothing is the beginning of eternity. It is a long time to be with Jesus. There is so much more. So let us encourage our hearts this morning that the blessed hope of all who believe is the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. To the degree that you believe this and it informs how you live is the measure of our hope or your hope in Jesus. Titus paints the picture for us, and I'm almost done, I promise. Titus says that Jesus, Paul is talking to Titus, Jesus will appear two times. Verse 11, there will be appearance of his grace, which is what we've already seen, and he did. He came and he died for us, and he rose from the dead so we could live. In verse 13, though, we see the appearance of his glory. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. First grace, then glory. The Christ who will come in glory is the Christ who came in grace. He's coming again. You can't get away from it. But verse 14 says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Verse 14 shows us how that grace appeared for us. And verse 12 was the same aim of grace is described in verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. What God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming of Christ, his glory he will complete in our lives through the second coming. He will not leave you undone, but he will finish the work. (laughs) That's why my hope is in him and no one else. That may be our heart, but we have yet to live that out. Let's go one bit deeper. If you believe he's coming again, then it will impact the way you live now. Isaiah once challenged his people, stop doing evil and learn to do what is good. Stop doing evil, unlearn, and learn to do what is good. This passage is describing to us the miracle of Jesus coming to change us from the inside out, that only he can actually do that, but he'll finish it. Get to work. Whatever you got to do, do it. So first, there's this renouncing of all that is ungodly and worldly desires, worldly hopes, false hopes, false gods, things that do not pass with us into heaven. How crazy is it to expend all of our energy on that which we leave behind? We can only take our hearts. And then the positive side, Jesus makes us able to live with the prudence which has everything under control, which allows no passion or desire more than its proper place. Listen, everything that we name that come, become our false hopes are not bad things when they're in their proper place. It's when they're disordered and it's bigger than God and it takes the place of hope in our lives, we're in trouble. And we don't get to change a world when we're too busy trying to change ourselves. 
We live in this dynamic of new life because of the expectation of the return of Jesus. He is coming back. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, 24 says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then like the one we read in Luke, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen to me. To the degree that your hope is invested in this earth is the degree your hope is not in Jesus. And to the degree that you will store up your treasure in heaven is the degree your hope is in him. Jesus said, unlearn, do not store your treasure up in this earth. Unlearn that. Fight those desires. Reorder those desires. Ask God to give you the right desires. Do whatever it takes. Let the Holy Spirit invade. Do not store up treasures in this earth. Unlearn it, but learn to store up your treasures in heaven. Because that lasts forever. And that's relational. And that's Jesus. How do I grow my value? How do I know that Jesus is my hope? Remember. Remember. You want to practice something? Practice remembering everything he's ever done. Read his word. Reflect on your own life. Just remember. Remember what he's doing right now. How he's changing you. Oh, man, I'm celebrating the crazy changes going on in my life. And they're drastic, some of them. To wake up and just not worried about anybody else being my hope of Jesus, it's crazy. But it's freeing. It's freeing. Remember what he's going to do, that he's coming. Remember it. Remember who he was, who he is, and who he will forever be. Remember his promises. Write them down. Remember, remember, remember. And let the hope of Jesus grow in your life and all false hope fade. Jesus, I pray for this church. There's a world that needs reached. And I, and I don't think a church investing in worldly values and false hopes is going to reach it. But you're calling people who hope in Jesus, who look forward to your return, who can't wait who are the ones that share daily and regularly the goodness of God. I pray you would grow that in us, that we would unlearn the things that we need to unlearn. Holy Spirit, show those to us, and we would remember in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we thank Dave for sharing with us today? I'm over there taking notes. I have two services worth of notes. Dave called out Ricky's notes, so Ricky, you and I will compare later. But if we want to learn Jesus as our hope, we have to unlearn the things that we've put our hope in. It doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you live. And if you want to grow hope, you have to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, These are the ways that we get to experience and dig more into the hope that we have and not just the hope that we have, but the hope that we get to share with others. And as a church, as a community, we don't just want to talk about this hope. We actually want to provide opportunities for people to experience it, explore it, discover it, and share it with other people. And so if you're in the room today, and as Dave was talking about this unlearning and learning process, and you're like, you know, I want to unlearn those things that are keeping me from hope in Jesus, but you don't even know where to start. You don't even know what that looks like. 
we'd love to have you join us at something called Alpha. Alpha is a small group of people that gets together over food and a talk about who Jesus is and what he's doing to grow in their experience of hope. And if you're interested in being a part of that, if you want to have those conversations, go ahead and check out the Orange Corner after service. There's going to be folks there that are willing to talk to you about what that means and what it means to be a part of that. This is going to start January 20th, Monday night. Uh, so stop by the Orange Corner after service. And maybe you're here and you're learning more of the hope of Jesus, but you haven't had the opportunity to share it with somebody that you know who needs it. And you know who that person is, and it is hard to find the right words or the right moment. Alpha is an opportunity for you to invite someone who needs the hope of Jesus to a place where they can keep exploring it alongside you. And so if you want to learn more about what it means to have hope in Jesus, if you want to share that hope in Jesus, check out Alpha. Stop by the orange corner. And here's what I'm going to say. Some of you here are thinking about this and you're hearing all this message. And you're like, you know what? I want to explore hope in Jesus, but I just... What if I go to this Alpha thing and it's just kind of awkward? Or what if I talk to somebody else and what if I invite them to come to Alpha with me and it's just awkward? Listen, awkward is a side effect of learning. The reason that things feel awkward is because you haven't done them before. You're in this unlearning and relearning process. So don't let the awkwardness of making an invitation or putting yourself out there, going to a group that you may not know anybody at, don't let the awkwardness keep you from unlearning the things that you've put your hope in so that you can learn how to live in the hope that Jesus offers. We love you guys, and we are so glad that you decided to be here today. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation next week. Have a great rest of the day, and we will see you again soon. Thanks for being here, everybody.